You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Laura Robinson, sports journalist, author... Hello. Hello. Laura, on the show today, parents, why is it so expensive for your kid to play hockey? The answer may horrify you. Also, confidential sources and why they may not exist under Canadian law. Welcome to Shortcuts, Laura, where today we need to warn listeners that every topic on the show is going to deal with sexual assault. We do not get to pick the news, folks. Uh, we just talk shit about the coverage. Welcome to Shortcuts. It's a pleasure to be here. This episode is brought to everybody by Christina Koski, Joanna Rickard, Dan Fox, Anna Lawrence, Taryn Zilk, Jasmine Bates, Eric Zimhelt, and Daniel. Hi, I'm Daniel Gerard, and I live in Greater Sudbury, Ontario. I support Canada Land because of its unique Canadian content and perspective. I thought I knew my country until I started listening to Shortcuts, Commons, The Backbench, and of course the excellent series Thunder Bay. Jesse Brown asks the hard questions in this critique of media in Canada. We need more of this more than ever. And thank you, Canada Land. 
A developing story in our nation's capital. Hockey Canada officials were back in the hot seat. Can Hockey Canada survive or should it? Tim Hortons has now suspended its funding to the national organization, joining Scotiabank, TELUS and Canadian Tire. The woman who filed a lawsuit against Hockey Canada after an alleged sexual assault four years ago in London, Ontario, has broken her silence. Demands for a changing of the guard front and centre as Hockey Canada CFO Brian Cairo admitted to settlement payments from its National Equity Fund. We made the decision to settle in the best interest of the young woman and to respect her privacy. And we did not want to subject her to further discussion or debate that we have now seen uh, through the media. And the fact is, in this 2018 case, they did keep playing. Everybody on that team had pro contracts or continued to play in, in the junior league. Laura, it's now a national scandal. Sexual abuse in Canadian hockey, cover-ups, institutional support for the alleged assaulters. The story has kind of exploded beyond the specific instance. And as these things go, it's shaking out of the trees case after case after case. It's inescapable. The headlines, like this is the national scandal right now. What must that be like for you? having literally written the book on sexual abuse in Canadian hockey in 1998 and, and having been diligently on this story year after year, you wrote about it for us in 2015, Rape Culture in Hockey, never with this level of traction and resonance with the public. Can you talk to me about what this experience is like for you? Well, I'm very happy that finally this issue, which it's a lot older than my book too, it's way older than 25 years old, that uh, this issue is finally front and center. I can't tell you what it's been like all these years to watch, you know, everyone rally around the junior national team. They normally have the junior worlds over the Christmas holidays. It's almost as if it's the second coming. And I think they're marketed that way too, as young gods. And finally, we're seeing rape culture in junior hockey for what it really is. It's uh, very deeply embedded. It's gone on for decade after decade after decade. I believe it starts in the locker room, mainly with the hazings, and that most of the uh, players who end up doing this and, and a number of people who don't do it, I think one thing we do have to remember is that it's still a minority of the junior players who are alleged to have participated in gang rapes, but the rest of them generally keep very quiet about what their teammates did. So it's opened the locker room door, and I welcome that opening, even though it should have happened decades ago. The coverage seems to be led by Rick Westhead of TSN, who broke this particular story, and Rick has been vocal about the debt his coverage owes to you and your coverage. He tweeted, with many now reporting the issue of sexual assault in sports, would like to acknowledge the work of journalist Laura Robinson, who's been invested in this topic for decades. Laura wrote the 1998 book, Crossing the Line, Violence and Sexual Assault in Canada's National Sport. More and more reporters on this, and, and we heard earlier Hockey Canada really speaking for the victim and saying, oh, we, we made decisions with her interests in mind, well, that woman has broken her silence and does not need Hockey Canada to speak for her. She has come forward to Robin Doolittle at the Globe and Mail. 
and I think contradicted what we've heard from Hockey Canada. What we heard from Hockey Canada under oath, there were people on the Heritage Committee who said, before we start these hearings, all of these witnesses must be under oath. So they said that under oath. This is not going away. And Westhead has also said that since the government hearings, 11 more survivors have reached out to share their stories with him, uh, including one remarkable woman who found Rick in Ottawa to tell him in person about her assault. Sheldon Kennedy has told me repeatedly what is being reported publicly is the tip of the iceberg, and he expects so many more survivors will come forward from all walks of life. I think that the reasons why this isn't going anywhere are, yes, because we're going to see more and more revelations, things that have been kept quiet, not just because the alleged perpetrators want it kept quiet, but uh, as you've been documenting for years, the ways in which institutions work swiftly and mercilessly to cover these assaults up, to suppress and pay off the victims, you know, that's all going to keep this story moving. But Laura, the main thing to me is that I'm looking at this from my perspective and I feel like people are used to reading stories about their sports heroes involved in scandal. That's nothing new. And sadly, people are used to reading stories about their sports heroes involved in sexual assault scandals. But to learn, as Canadian parents did, that when they pay Hockey Canada these large fees for their kids to be involved, part of that money is going into what they call an equity fund, but what is in fact a rape cover-up fund, makes people complicit or feel complicit and feel betrayed across this country. And when you see Tim Hortons severing their relationship from Hockey Canada, like Tim Hortons is synonymous with hockey in Canada. And for Hockey Canada to be bad for the brand of Tim Hortons feels like there is an existential shift that, that like the optics of hockey might be forever changed. Yes. Well, I'd like to go back to Rick Westhead because I think he's done a fabulous job. And when I was writing my book, I think one thing was clear to me is that the reason that so many young women contacted me and would talk to me, and actually young men too, because I covered hazings, which is, like I said, where all of this starts. It starts in a very ugly place in the locker room. I felt that they were coming forward to me, but not my colleagues, is because I was the only female. There were so few female sports writers at the time who were writing about the dark side of sport, especially. And men were definitely not writing about the dark side of sport. And so one thing I think that's really changed is that Rick's coverage has been, I think, very compassionate, but still very objective. So it sounds like women are able now to come forward to a man. And that is new for me. That's very new. And men, I think, probably will come forward to him. And I encourage people to come forward to journalists uh, like myself, like Robin Doolittle, who are, I hope, very careful with these stories because they are very difficult to tell. I think what everyone has to realize who has a story to tell and often it's the sister or the brother or the cousin or the best friend who tells that story, that journalists are not counsellors. And we can listen 
and we can try to tell stories in a compassionate and public way while maintaining people's privacy. But what this brings up is our very dark memories and people need to try to seek some help as well as tell their stories. So I I just want to give that warning to anyone out there. But yes, I think that there has been an absolute shift in the branding of Hockey Canada. Last night, I read a report from the Harvard Business School about how incredible Hockey Canada's brand is, particularly for the Junior World Men's Championships. They don't even put the word men's in there, right? Because it's assumed that if you say the Junior World Championships of Hockey, that there are only men. (laughs) Women don't exist in that sphere, when in fact there is a U18 Women's World Hockey Championship. And when I went through the report from Harvard Business School, it was so interesting how it's all now completely blowing up. To talk about a few aspects of that, you talk about the relationship between victims and the journalist and how once upon a time, uh, perhaps the toxic masculinity in hockey and the culture of hockey prevented victims from speaking to male reporters. You sort of had an advantage, I suppose, in terms of getting those stories because they were more likely to confide in you. And maybe something has shifted in that they're willing to talk to Rick Westhead and other male journalists. That's about the relationship between the journalist and the source. But there's also the relationship between the public and the journalist. And I want to ask you, do you feel like the public is more receptive to believing these stories when it comes from Rick Westhead on TSN than when it comes from Laura Robinson? You've written and, and filed for many organizations, but you know sometimes an independent journalist, sometimes writing for the alternative press. Is there a sexist aspect in terms of the public's willingness to take news from a known sports journalist with TSN, who's a guy? Yeah, I think there is. I think that things are always legitimized when men say them. You know, I love this cartoon. It's of a board meeting and the guy who's chairing the meeting says, that's a great point, Ms. Smith. We'll just wait till one of the men make it. I mean, that has happened. You know, my sports of cycling and cross-country skiing, where I raced and cycling at the international level and cross-country skiing at definitely at the provincial level, you know, won Ontario championships. It is incredible how little credibility, even at that level, even when I can be a a Canadian champion in one sport, a provincial champion in another, it's a very deeply sexist place. So I know that. I've experienced it all my life. But I think I'm just really happy now that men can tell this story. Because if it's only women telling the story, it remains a women's issue. You know, of course, sexual assault is not just a women's issue almost all sexual assaulters are men. It's a men's issue, and it's a hockey issue. Well, and men are are often the victims as well. You brought up hazing, and and I remember those stories that came from those private schools here in Toronto around sport and sexual assaults that happened to, to rookies, I guess. I have some familiarity with covering sexual assault. I have very little familiarity with hockey. The place that it holds in the hearts and minds of Canadians has always been a bit of a mystery to me. It's strange to watch this all unfold from an outsider's perspective that like, as I understand the circumstance right now, if you are watching the men's junior championship team, some members have stepped forward to say, 
I was not involved with this gang rape, and I can say that clearly, and I'm not on any videotape that might exist, and others have remained silent. So now I suppose those watching their sports heroes play have to wonder which of these guys did this. They're all being very careful, of course, about how they frame what happened in that hotel room. I thought what was very interesting in the uh, Heritage Committee meetings, which I attended, was that one of the uh, committee members asked uh, the CHL. So on the second day last week, the CHL was there as well. And they asked that person, do you have any knowledge about another private investigation going on done by the London Knights, which is the CHL team in London. And at that point, I knew that it was alleged that London Knights players were in that hotel room too. So it goes bigger than just the Hockey Canada team. You know, it's so much a part of that culture. And uh, I think if we're going to write about it and, and discuss it nationwide, which we're doing, you know, we need to see those deep roots. Uh, after my book came out, it, men from the military were waiting for me up at various book launches because they had been hazed mm-hmm. in terrible, terrible ways. At the beginning of my book, I talk about that, how the rookie is, you know, told, you're my bitch for the week. So, the rookie becomes the designated female in the group. Uh, and it may as well be a gang. You know, I know they're called hockey teams, but they may as well be gangs for what they're doing. And by the end of that rookie's initiation, I argue that whatever femaleness that is in that man, and, you know, every man has a woman in him and every woman has a man in her. And there's, we all kind of, slide along this matrix, the reason for the hazing is to beat out and kill any so-called softness or compassion or empathy that is seen as, you know, in quotation marks, female. So the rookie player can be as violent as he needs to be in order to make hockey work in small town Canada. So it is very deeply embedded in terms of misogyny. And it's also deeply embedded in terms of how hockey replicates the uh, militaristic mindset and how it replicates religion too. And I argue in crossing the line that as we've become a secular country, we've transferred the worshiping of the promise of the young man from the church to the hockey arena. But there's still the promise of the young man and there's all the hierarchy, the father, son, and the Holy Ghost. They're all there in terms of the owner, the manager, the coach, the player. It has borrowed everything from the kind of abuse we see in the Catholic church and other churches. To hear you describe this, you're talking about some much broader themes than just how the media handles this. And yes, there is this perhaps permanent damage to the brand of hockey, but to to actually think from the point of view of a parent about what you just said, I would not let my kid within a hundred miles of this. Like, I have to ask again, like, it, it doesn't sound like you're describing something that's redeemable. On Thursday morning, I emailed Heritage Canada, and Sport Canada is within Heritage Canada, and Sport Canada partially funded all the junior world championships that were held in Canada, and many have been held in Canada. 
including the year after this alleged gang assault. So let's start right there. The alleged assault occurred in June 2018. Ten days later, Sport Canada is told. Last week at the Heritage Committee, Sport Canada was you know, on the hot seat and they actually said, yes, we noted that. They noted that Hockey Canada had reported to them that there was an alleged gang sexual assault. And then they never asked another question after that. And what's really important to know is that Sport Canada funded, in part, the next World Championships for junior men, which was in Canada in 2019. Not once did they say to themselves, hmm, maybe we should take a second look at the money we're giving Hockey Canada to host the Junior Worlds. And then Hockey Canada did it again in 2021. They just handed over the money, no questions asked. And they did again this year. You know, the World Juniors start in Edmonton, partially funded by you and I. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Laura, we try to duly note stories for our listeners that they might otherwise miss. Is there something in particular that you feel people should pay attention to? Yes, I think it's the role Sport Canada played in this. So Sport Canada is the funding agency under the Ministry of Sport, and they are separate from the ministry. And as it turns out, after they learned about this alleged gang sexual assault 10 days after it happened, they didn't let the minister at the time 
Kirstie Duncan know, even though she had definitely stated publicly that safe sport was her number one priority. They didn't let the present Minister of Sport, Pascal Saint-Ange, who I think has done a very good job so far on this, they didn't let her know. It was Hockey Canada who let her know two days before uh, Rick Westhead's story broke that it was going to break. And as I said earlier, they did nothing except continue to fund Hockey Canada. And with these junior worlds also must be funded by every level of government. So, for instance, the BC government, the last time they were held just a couple of years ago in uh, Victoria and Vancouver, you know, the BC government guaranteed $10 million and they immediately forked over over a million. Uh, the cities of Vancouver and Victoria forked over hundreds of thousands of dollars each. Right. So when we're talking about <laughs> a country and sport and various cities and provinces who say they believe in gender equity, we're also in a situation where all of the above fund massive amounts of money towards male hockey, junior hockey. And during the same time period, Canada didn't once host the Women's U18 World Championships. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at what the hell is Sport Canada up to and why are they completely unaccountable? I asked them Thursday morning, how much money did you give to Hockey Canada for these various World Championships between 2019 and now? They have yet to tell me. Yeah, I'm not sure that, that they understand yet. I'm not sure the CEO of, of Hockey Canada understands yet. Like, you're not writing this out. Now is the time to be responsive, accountable. Who knew what, when, who paid for it, who covered this up? It's all going to come out. Yeah, and also, first of all, there's an extreme amount of male violence in hockey. So why are you continuing to fund this sport? Uh, there's only so much money that goes to hosting international competitions in Canada. It's called the hosting program. So if you're giving money to a sport that has a history of a rape culture, you're also not giving that finite amount of money to sports that don't have a history of it, like women's hockey. Duly noted. I have one that a listener sent in, just an astonishing story of how not to cover sexual assault uh, out of Newfoundland and Labrador. This is a CBC story that came out on July 27th. This is last week. Father says son with autism did not intend to harm woman in St. John's Park. Really, this is a story about a sexual assault told from the perspective of the alleged perpetrator's father. This is uh, reported by Ariana Kelland, CBC News. I'll read a bit from this. Calvin Flynn's heart dropped when he soon discovered his 22-year-old son, who has autism and requires the 24-hour care of his two parents, was in the back of a police car. I know my son loves to hug someone, and I know that if he went to the park without me there with him, if the opportunity arose, he was going to hug someone. And that's exactly what happened, Flynn said. He said that his son is not a monster who intended to inflict harm on anyone, but a gentle man with a love of paintings, flags, eating fast food, and walking in Bowering Park with his dad, something he can no longer do because of a police order to stay away. Laura, this just goes on and on with a sympathetic portrait. Uh, I can understand 100% how the alleged victim felt, said the father, uh, because my son is a big boy. 
I want to tell you my son did not intentionally want to hurt or sexually assault you, he said, addressing the woman. He doesn't have the mental capability to ever do something like that. He has no concept of it. And this article features a picture of his son's artwork. It's a poster the son made that says, bless those who see life through a different window and those who understand their view. The story goes on to blame the system that his 22-year-old son had to wait for four years for a psychiatrist, that they were failed by the system, which I'm sure has a lot of truth to it. But this story contained nothing from the alleged victim's point of view. It's just this, you know, very specific telling of what happened and how it was misinterpreted and how this was not a conscious sexual assault. I'm not sure exactly what happened behind the scenes in the newsroom. The CBC did follow up with an article later that day that that I think tried to balance things with some comment from the uh, alleged victim who, who spoke to the CBC. But it still ended up as an indictment of the system more than anything else. And you still had very, uh, like, very hazy idea of what exactly happened. Well, the alleged victim then took to Facebook and wrote a post in which she wrote that she felt completely victimized by the CBC's reporting. Sickening. This is not their story to tell. This happened to me. I don't know how you people sleep at night. They left out the majority of the details I described, and of course they're making it sound like the perpetrator is the victim. And then she goes on to provide her account of this alleged assault, and it is graphic, and I can fully understand why she felt the need to describe it in all of its graphic detail. I'm not going to do that here. I will say that what she describes is getting out of a public swimming pool and lying in the grass to sunbathe and then being attacked by a large 22-year-old man who was violent with her, who was not hugging her, who by her description, what she describes is a sexual assault that went on and on for like 15 minutes as she describes it, in which he explicitly yelled rape threats at her and chased her around when she's in her swimsuit, standing on her clothing so she couldn't get to it and, and, and being violent with her It's much worse than that. She takes particular umbrage with the sympathy and the space given to the father's description where he tries to kind of erase, like, that it's called a hug, that my son likes to hug people. I know how my son loves to hug someone, and I know that if he went to the park with me there with him, if the opportunity arose, he was going to hug somebody. And... That's exactly what happened. She says that after she first posted about this on Facebook, another woman contacted her to say that she too had been attacked by an autistic man in that park in June. And that the father of this man pulled him away from her, pulled him off of her and says, you can't keep trying to hug girls. So she writes, the father is clearly downplaying these sexual assaults by calling them hugs. And he is sugarcoating the violence involved. There are many problems with all of this. Partly there is, I think, an injury done to people on the autism spectrum, this idea that that is cover for what was clearly, as described, a sexual assault, a very serious crime. I don't know where to go with this beyond to say that, like, the process by which the CBC covered this and the difficulties in getting victims' points of view when their names are obscured should not create an opportunity to give such a completely unfettered platform for, I don't even want to say the other side, but for the the advocates of the other side. I mean, you know, the first article should not have been published. It's, um, it's shocking. 
It's shocking. I agree with you that uh, it categorizes people on an autism spectrum as if they have no idea of, you know, right from wrong sort of thing. And, and it silences completely the victim. It's just shocking, actually. It's wild that the victim has to be re-victimized by the press and then it has to like, OK, if you're going to sugarcoat this, here's what actually happened, you know, as a response to the media coverage. You know, th- there are ways in which we can hurt people if we do our jobs the wrong way. And I think that this needs to be studied and read and, and, and people need to be held account for this beyond uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. Duly noted. Laura, while we are uh, still on this topic of, of the media and the way that we cover sexual assault, there is another story about sexual assault in hockey that has made the news out west. I don't know that many people are aware of this outside of there, and, and, and there's a specific particular legal point to this that I think is worth some unpacking. Last week, Vancouver Canucks player Jake Vertanen was found not guilty of sexual assault. That verdict came after... The court ruled that a reporter with Glacier Media had to hand over to the court and to the alleged perpetrator and his counsel emails, texts, and a video interview with Jake Vertanen's accuser. Okay, so this reporter had been talking to the accuser for a news story and dealing with that accuser as a confidential source. But then when this goes to trial, B.C. Supreme Court Judge Catherine Wedge concludes that it is more important for Vertanen's access to a fair trial to have these materials from the journalist's coverage uh, and that the impact on press freedom would be minimal. Laura, you and I have both been in positions where we have had to build trust with accusers and the primary concern that they have, and I don't know about you, but the promise that I've given is you are my confidential source and your name will not appear. You can speak to me without being afraid that your name is going to appear in anything that I publish. What we can't promise, it seems, is that we can keep their names or the contents of our communications with them confidential from a court order. Yes, I find the case very interesting. I read uh, Kirk LaPointe's editorial about it in uh, Business in Vancouver this morning, and someone contacted me last month about uh, something, and I sent her the article, and I said, let's just talk in person, because I want to be able to protect you, Mm -hmm. and I don't want an electronic version of our conversation. The other thing that I find very interesting is that Justice Wedge is the same judge who ruled in the case I had against John Furlong. That's right. That's right. I thought I recognized the name. This is a story you broke some years ago about a man who is now known as uh, the head of the Vancouver Olympics and and a highly respected figure and 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 a person who sits on various boards and is very important in sport, but who has a past in Indigenous schools where many of his former students stepped forward with very serious allegations and they confided in you, this BC Supreme Court judge, Catherine Wedge, presiding over A defamation case disallowed the testimony, the affidavits, would not let the alleged victim's words to be heard uh, in a trial that very much had to do 
with the credibility of the allegations that they were making. Here was a case where the people who were allegedly victimized had no voice in the legal proceedings. And we see her again in this ruling that Glacier Media, in that article by Kirk Lapointe of Glacier Media, he lets us know that they are going to be appealing this to the Supreme Court of Canada. Laura, we do have protections in federal law for journalism. We have the 2017 Federal Journalistic Sources Protection Act, which was created specifically within criminal law to allow journalists to not disclose information or a document that identifies or is likely to identify sources unless the information or document cannot be obtained by any other reasonable means, et cetera, et cetera. There's a pretty big loophole in that. And what that loophole means is, I hate to say this because like we always want to encourage people to speak to us, right? We don't want to give disincentives. Like it is hard work getting people to trust us and to hand over the name of one of my sources is sort of an unthinkable thing, but I don't want to castigate any journalist who by a court order is forced to do so. Cause like when you get down to that decision of like, do you want to go to jail or hand over these documents? I don't want to pass judgment on anybody who hands over the documents. But it does affect our practice. Like, we can't really say to a source, don't worry, I will never share your name with anyone. Like, the best we can really say is, don't worry, I won't publish your name. But you should know that it is possible that a court could compel me to hand over all record of our communication and hand it over to the person that you're whistleblowing on or accusing. That is a a hard atmosphere for journalists. It is a harder atmosphere than exists in the United States. It is a real blow to journalism. I'm very heartened, though, that Kirk LaPointe and Glacier Media will be taking this to the Supreme Court of Canada because I thought that the act was going to protect us and protect our sources. And maybe we also, unfortunately, need to have Supreme Court decisions so it's clear to judges who don't seem to be able to understand it. Yeah, I understand that there are edge cases and outliers, but like... If source protection laws don't protect the confidentiality of a accuser in a sexual assault story who is working with a journalist under an understanding of confidentiality, like that's like a bright line test case of like what confidentiality exists for. Like a lot of people are granted confidentiality in the day-to-day practice of journalism who probably should not be granted confidentiality in a lot of political reporting and other things. But like We have this practice and we have laws to protect this practice specifically for cases like this. Yes, it really is a difficult blow. I want to read the decision. I want to see exactly why Justice Wedge thought that this should occur. I know this from interviewing hundreds of sexual assault survivors over many decades that What they tell you on one day will differ from what they'll tell you on another day in that they often are in such a state of trauma that they're reliving it in in various ways, right? Especially if there have been multiple times that they've been assaulted. I mean, it's just such a difficult place. So the fact that journalists' notes or recordings might appear to be inconsistent with something else, like, for instance, what that person told the police or something, that actually is normal because of the way in which that person's brain is trying to deal with the trauma that is revisited as they tell their story. Yeah. I mean, we know more about this, and I think that more people know more about this than before, about how memory works and how people build all kinds of things to cover up or to deal with or cope with trauma and to expect 
uh, that level of consistency where any minor point gets pulled apart as evidence of lack of credibility. Basically, if talking to a journalist might mean creating a record that gets handed over to the person who you think victimized you, that is a non-starter. That is an end to all the progress that's been made. That puts the kibosh on journalism about assault, sexual assault, and so many other things as well. So I'm going to be watching this appeal really closely because this is an important case. It's a very important case. Laura, that is a very heavy episode of Shortcuts this week. Thank you for joining me for it. You're very welcome. I just want to also remind people that if this has made them revisit memories that are very, very difficult for them, I hope that they find help with that. And I am, despite Justice Wedge's decision, I think there are a number of journalists who want to help them tell their stories, and we will do our very best to respect them. Well, you are one of those journalists, Laura, and I know that you do protect your sources, and you've let me know that if people want to reach you, uh, we can act as an intermediary. Please email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com for anything you might want to communicate to me or if you want to get in touch with Laura. I want to congratulate William and Ryan on their commitment ceremony this weekend. Mazel tov to the happy couple. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do here and you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts and support our work, please hit the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Join.